Welcome again to Comp Day with Dre. Welcome. It is um, a very rainy day in May, and but we made it out here today. We made it. So um, this is um, my It Takes a Village um, Networks of Color episode. And we're going to explore some things, but we're going to go, you know, and I just want to re- um, re- reintroduce myself again. I'm Dre. I'm a proud, queer, black man fundraiser. <laughs> I'm 24, and I live in New York City, you know, really Brooklyn. But, you know, I live in New York, and um, you're going to get way more familiar with me, and we're going to be real intimate here. So um, at, going back to business, um, we do a shout-out for, like, employee of the day, and that is um, an individual in these streets who's killing it, and they're a person of color. And I thought, based on someone who really cares about their network and really it, and cares about their village, I thought of no one better than um, city council member Richie Torres. So you can, his name is spelled R-I-T-C-H-I-E, and then Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S. So Richie Torres is the youngest city council member um, for New York City. He's about, I think, 27. I might be wrong. 26, 27. He's very young. Um, he is the, the council member for the 15th district in Central Bronx. So shout out to the Bronx. I was born there. You know, shout out BX. So he really is supporting his community. He actually, um, his journey is amazing because he grew up in the project's of East Bronx in the in Throgs Neck and with his mom and he um he is a gay he's a proud gay Puerto Afro Latino Puerto Rican and he really rose up in the government and he he's just an inspiration because in his platform and in his um privilege he uses that to um support his community that he's from and he is currently the chair of he's the chair council for the committee on public housing. So he's a very big proponent on supporting public housing, especially for residents in the Bronx. And he is the chair for oversight and investigations committee. And they specialize in property affairs, government, basically white collar crime. So it's really good to have, you know, one of our people who understands the consequences of white collar crime. And he is basically, yeah, he's. He's sticking it to the man and making sure the man stays accountable. So you go, Richie Torres, and um, keep doing what you're doing. And if you look for him, just, you know, you can Google him. He's all over the place. (laughs) So I want to introduce two of my wonderful queer POC brothers out here. And they both are from the, um, they're from the nonprofit fundraising game like I am too. And... It's really great to have them here. So um, I'm going to um, allow them to introduce themselves. Um, you want to, which ones want to start? Um. <laughs> I guess I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am Eddie. My real name is Eduardo. Um, I am a fundraiser um, in arts and culture here in New York City. Um, mm-hmm. I am a proud gay Latino. Um yeah, I've been working in um, nonprofit fundraising for several years, starting right out of college. Um, uh, I'm very lucky now to be working in a queer space fundraising for the Leslie Loman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art, um, which I am 
very new to the role. Um, So I'm very excited about those opportunities, but I've worked at several other cultural institutions here in New York. Yeah, I'm happy to be here with Dre. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Adrian. Um, I am a very proud um, black gay man. Um, I have been working um, in the LGBT space for, it's going to be about eight years now, Um, originally from South Florida. um, And I've also moved to New York City. It'll be seven years in August. Um, So I'm I'm sort of, I keep telling people I'm gunning for 10 um, uh, to make it even. Um, And I'm very also happy to be here. So thanks, Trey. And let's give some context how we know each other a bit. So um, because we're talking about our network of color. And um, I will start with, let's, I'll start with Eddie first, since Eddie started, and um, how Eddie and I know each other is um, at my past organization. I worked for an LGBT Oregon. Um, they had this cocktail event, and I was working the event, and Eddie um, was in our space, in, in philanthropy. The spaces can be very, um, there's a lot of white walkers. It's very snowflake. So there aren't a lot of people of color, and he really, you know, he was there at the event, at this mezcal event and that's when i first like was introduced to mezcal and it was amazing mm-hmm. but he like really and it was like i forgot where it was like tribeca or something but he reached yeah. out to me and he was like hey like i basically i see you i see you out here <laughs> and um we really connected immediately um eddie and i and another good friend of ours i'm not gonna i don't have permission to disclose their name so i'm not going to but um but yeah we really connected and we really stayed in touch and I think it was really inspiring to see Eddie there and to also see what he does in his growth and to maintain our friendship. And yeah, he's just amazing. Um, Is that, is that right? Is that accurate? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, If I remember correctly, the event was for kind of like young donors, um, you know, young professionals, um, you know, trying to network and, um, you know, even though the premise of a lot of those events can be to connect people, they're also extremely intimidating most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really hard to kind of break out of the shell and make um, distinct connections in spaces, you know, even when there is um, a kind of a proactive approach to creating spaces for young people. Um, to meet peers and mm-hmm. um, kind of you know discuss what they do and connect over an organization that they support um, or a passion that they have. Um, so, but so I think that you know there's a there there's a lot of weight in people actually making those connections for themselves. So the more we can just kind of break through that, uh, it's a little, um, I think the more that. Those spaces can be beneficial for for us, but um, but it's really great to kind of make real connections out of that. And I, you know, I just want to highlight how difficult it can be sometimes. You know, so true. We're mm-hmm. gonna we're gonna really get into that. <laughs> and um, Adrian and I Hi. know each other um, also through my that same place of work. Um, so so when you're a person of color working in the LGBT philanthropy space, there are not a lot of us running around. Mm -hmm. And Adrian and I kind of knew the same people because I had like interned where he worked Mm -hmm. and then 
he had worked before where I worked, mm-hmm. and we knew like we kept running, and people kept saying, "Do you know Adrian? Right. Do you know Andre?" And we're like, "No." And then we saw each other on LinkedIn, and I was like, "But I want to be his friend, though." <laughs> and then we um, there was a networking event um, for um, fundraisers, um, so queer fundraisers, yeah. and we like hit it off immediately. Um, and you know, he's been you know he's been my big brother since. Aww, so, so yeah, um, is that about? Accurate. <laughs> that's, that's accurate actually it's so funny because you um i almost forget that that one ne- networking event that took place um for all of us um fundraisers um in the space and like yeah it was a long time ago but yeah i i got we got that so so much from so many people i was like oh my god no i have to meet him so no it's been it's been sweet ever since and he's also my fellow jamaican yes yeah, <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> um so um to talk about why it's so important to it takes a village let's start with because like we said we're in a lot of we're in a ton of spaces that predominantly do not look like us Mm -hmm. can you like share a moment in your career when it was really blatant that you felt different or this otherness because of your background well professionally yeah Yeah, professionally Mm -hmm. Or I mean, well, as long, professionally yeah, in your career, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of my first kind of roles in uh, nonprofit fundraising was for a culturally specific institution uh, here in New York City. Um, so I think that otherness like exists in many ways, and like in that specific circumstance, it was like celebrated. Um, So I think, you know, there's kind of, there's negative connotations to otherness that we kind of are very familiar with, Mm -hmm. like feeling excluded, feeling like a space isn't yours or made for you. Um, But then there's otherness in spaces that are created for you Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of I felt like an other, but also like in the realization that that is an empowering thing to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, that there's there's a space, and actually in fundraising, there's a lot of opportunity um, in celebrating otherness. So, you know, when I started at this particular place um, in the arts world, um, that's culturally specific. Um, it was. Like it just hit me like there's a lot of opportunity in this and and I'd been you know being a Latina I'd worked at other organizations even prior to that that were also culturally specific uh, but very whitewashed mm-hmm. right and didn't um, it was a lot more about assimilation and finding common bonds in order mm-hmm. for people that maybe aren't of the community to understand um, you know where where we're coming from and so it was just really uplifting within the arts world to see that this otherness this you know feeling excluded could actually be translated into something that's empowering Mm -hmm. Um, so i just want to like highlight those that dichotomy right like of Mm -hmm. like otherness in in the negative sense and otherness in a way that's celebratory and um, can be really productive. So finding one's own strength through their uniqueness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, point. like all of, you know, n- 
nothing is really constructed to get you to that point where you <laughs> you you have to have this network of people. You have to be in a setting that embraces and celebrates otherness mm -hmm. in order to get there. If you're not, then otherness just remains stagnant and doesn't allow you to grow or allow anyone else around you to grow, right? So mm -hmm. it's networks, I think, are really pivotal for that. Okay. Good point. Adrian, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I get this question on, you know, what is it like to have built a career pre predominantly sort of in the LGBTQ space, right? Where, and, you know, I will say I made a very conscious decision around this, right? Like, I, I, I specifically, I think, from my college days and being involved as a very active, like, you know, queer student leader, um, I was just like, I, I wanted to be, in, I knew I wanted to be involved in the movement in part because I, I felt like it was sort of like a, it was a family space. I knew I, I could, that that otherness, that's at least one thing I didn't have to worry about, right? Like, already I got the, like, I already got the black thing going on, right? Like, and so it's like, if I could be in a space where I can help and support my own people, um, which is what I spent majority of my student career doing um, and really helping to lift up um, LGBTQ voices on our campus. When I made the decision to work in the movement professionally after college, um, it, it, it was it was like a, it was like 100, like I have to do it. Um, what I think was so interesting is that in between that transition, so before, after I'd left college and before I started in the movement, my first job seven years ago, um, I'd interned um, at this one um, Ivy League institution, which I will uh, go nameless for a second. <laughs> but um, it's interesting. So like growing up in this, growing up in Florida um, and then, you know, here's this black gay guy working at this Ivy League institution. And I think, like, which is much smaller, right? Like, I went to a very big school, but this, this one particular Ivy League, almost all the Ivy Leagues are very, very small. And I had this moment where, like, because I wasn't really fully a student anymore and I was sort of starting my professional career in this internship, um, I was with a lot of – working with a lot of white women. Um, and, and one thing about Ivy League culture, which is so interesting and so astonishing, is that it's – it's very like embedded. Like they like they've done what they have done for so long. I mean, it's part of like the Ivy League history and like culture, right? Which is one of the reasons I think a lot of the Ivy Leagues are under criticism because their their refusal to change. But I remember my day to day experiences being very very challenging. Um, and like it was one of those like wow, like I'm really skilled at this job, but like I'm still having so many microaggressional issues in this office and like I was like oh my god and I'm like D is it because I'm black is it because I'm gay is it because it's both is it because it's like the the environment like I don't know what it is um but fortunately I had a, a good enough boss who was I will say was like a white cis like straight man right like who definitely like kept me away from the fray as much as possible and like I would say as far as his politics was better better than the most of the other white women in the office I was working with but like it was a very very interesting experience but I, I say I contextualize this because this was my first particular professional experience after college <clears throat> and excuse me I you know before <clears throat> as I was <clears throat> excuse me as I was making the transition you know, to then move to New York City thereafter and actually start my first, like, queer job, I keep looking back at that, like, those two summers I spent, and I was just like, wow, like, um, like, I think I made the right choice. And <laughs> and not because of, like, right, like, I think I enjoyed my working experience, but it was my first taste of, like, a professional job where, like, it was heteronormative and, like, I was with, like, a lot of people who didn't look like me. Um, and it, it sort of solidified, like, you know what, I really think I want to work in a space um, that I had more LGBT folks. And so 
Um, and I made, and I consciously made the decision for every job I've had since then. Um, but like, you know, I still get asked, particularly now, like, would I ever, would I ever, would I ever leave the, the queer space and go somewhere else? Like, when I think about, like, otherness, and the we have our own challenges place. even in the queer space, the right? Sun, but you, yes. they ask if you go into the sunken place. Exactly. Exactly. That's at that. Well, I mean, we get into that. We're, we just, we're, we're still warming up here. Yeah. But, like, um, that was a very interesting um, time for me, but it solidified that, like, no, I think I want to work for the gays. I'm gay, and I want to work for my people. That's right. You better taste the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, yeah, I would say I had a, um, the moment I felt the otherness was actually at um, AFP events, the Association of Fundraising mm. Professionals. And they're a great organization. Right. I think it was just the makeup of the folks that were like present. Like right. I started going to these events and I was the only person of my age, black, gay, running around. Right. And I was like, this is really not cool. But I started meeting some really, like, amazing people. But I mm-hmm. felt like, I- I'm like, this is, I knew that in philanthropy, the donors usually skew more um, Caucasian. Right. But I thought at least for some of the um, nonprofit organizations, they would have some more diversity with their um, fundraisers. Mm-hmm. And no, it's just like a lot of um, cisgendered, older white folks. And it's like, Okay, this is not, you know, I'm glad they they have jobs, mm-hmm. but this is kind of saddening that for a role that supports communities, there's not a big representation um, across um, ethnicity or even um, queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and even and if we go into those politics, too, you know, even though there's a lot of women in our industry, most of the leadership are men, but that's a whole nother right. you know, subject and issue but (laughs) but that's when i kind of knew felt the otherness um in those spaces i'm in a room with full like a hundred plus people and i'm the only in that space and i'm like that is something's wrong Mm -hmm. something's very wrong (laughs) but you mentioned kind of um university culture and you know university is a is a a space where you do have long-lasting relationships and you move forward but let's say um you went you know some folks have leave from hbcus and they have these um, networks of color already established mm-hmm. for them. And then others of us who went to PWIs, predominantly white institutions, for those who don't know, don't know those acronyms, and HBCUs are historically black universities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you don't, I went to PWI. I didn't, you know, I had people in my network of color, but I didn't know a ton of folks out after, like alumni and stuff. So, you know. Um, that's a different experience for me versus someone leaving an HBCU or leaving from a predominantly um, a predominant space of color. Um, so let's talk. How did you like start building your network of color? Like, how did that start? Was it was it a um, a really natural, easy process? Was it not? Yeah, give me some context. How that worked for you guys? Um, well, I can start, but I do want to. Um, just piggyback off of a couple of things that you talked about. You know, when I started kind of entering the nonprofit space, um, I also had the realization that there weren't a lot of people that looked like me. Um, and over the years, um, it's also just become very clear that it's an issue of affordability. Like, mm-hmm. can you afford to work in the nonprofit space? Because there is a huge issue around. Um, you know, what people are being paid for their work, right? Um, so th- there, 
you know, the demands, the kind of the culture um, is can be really aggressive in the nonprofit sector. You know, we talk a lot about like corporate culture, but mm -hmm. the the lack of resources um, in the nonprofit sector can create for a really um, a really harsh culture, right? Wherever it is that you work, so um, that's definitely something. I mean, we can. I'm sure we all kind of have the connections to yes. that, but um, we can delve further into it. But in terms of my university, which was also um, a predominantly white university, um, it really was about getting active in student clubs. And um, even even if it wasn't like the only thing that I was you know, really dedicated to, it was just like making connections in those spaces. Um, because, you know, universities can be really privileged spaces. Um, and so there, there is kind of at least a, some sort of initiative in creating student clubs for Latinos, for um, LGBTQ folk, whatever have you. Um, but it's really about us to, like, get engaged. And, you know, I, I can say that in the long run, it was probably really difficult for me, like I didn't stay as active as I probably could have um, with all the other things that you have going on around like, you know, studying and such. Um, but at least tapping into those resources, because at the end of the day, like these are highly privileged spaces that have the ability to, you know, create clubs for this and that, whatever, like you're interested in. Um, so it really is about just getting engaged, even if you're not, you know, if it's not going to be your one passion that you know, you're fully immersed in, you're part of, like, the leadership for the club or whatever it might be, like, still making connections with those people and you're just, you know, utilizing the resources that are in front of you um, I think is really important. And just, you know, in the realization that you are in a really a privileged space like a predominantly white, large university, there are resources there to tap into and kind of build a network from. So I still am very much in touch with several friends that I made um, through those, you know, initial connections freshman year, just going to like all the clubs that I like identified with in some way or another, or like I had a passion in. Um, and that was really helpful, I think, in the long run, even if I didn't fully immerse myself in that particular club all through, you know, college. So in terms of your... Um your um, undergraduate experience in networking with folks of color too, how did that translate into like the beginning of your career? Um, did, did you think those same, the same like, you know, getting engaged in um, extracurriculars, um, was that something you used um, for the beginning of your career to meet more folks of color in your professional life? Or um, did that change because the dynamics are different? Because there weren't, you know, there's not a... Mm -hmm. In undergraduate, there's a ton of clubs that you have access to, and then you become an adult in the real world, and you're like, I don't have this. Yeah. Like, what do I do? How do I meet people who actually will understand my specific experience, or I can just ask questions? I don't know everything, so how do I, how do I learn? Um, how do I find folks that may know what I need? How how did that translate for you a bit? Yeah, well, I don't think to your point there is not as many resources once you leave college in a formal setting about getting together around, you know what people that share a common thread in how you identify or a common, you know, passion that you're interested in. 
there really, you know, there aren't that many clubs or sort of that sort of thing, unless you're, you know, in a really large organization and there are employee resources groups and that sort of thing. But that has that's like when you're already in there and working, right? Um, but what I do want to highlight is that um, through my interest in getting connected with these student clubs, um, I built really lasting friendships. So I want to highlight how important it was to build those personal friendships, that personal network mm-hmm. of just seeing people um, kind of succeed and follow their own passions. And maybe you're not really day-to-day you're not talking about like your struggles or I you know can really identify with like you know working in the same sector or professional experiences but you have that personal connection right it it, it kind of goes back a little bit to this you know just like caring for yourself and caring for one another in your network um, based off of those personal uh, connections that you've made that are lasting. So, you know, there, there's a lot of value in keeping in touch in just sharing what, you know, your your professional allocates are and just like, you know, connecting, staying connected. So. Yeah, I'm, I will, um, goodness, you got me reminiscing of my college days. I, I <laughs> my goodness, uh, I mean, I will say it was very challenging. Um, I'm a very small orbit person. Actually, I think like my Myers-Briggs, if anyone knows what it is, like I think I was like always rated introverted for like the first good portion of my life. And so the first two years in college, I kind of like kept myself. Like, I mean, I, I mean, yes, I was involved in student government, but like I didn't really have like a fully formed network or like group of people um, queer or like a network of color even yet. Like it was sort of like a mash pash. Like I was sort of figuring out because I went to a very, very large university, um, which I think in retrospect, like if and when I have kids, I think I would like, I would make very different decisions and in terms of like helping them think about the kind of institution that is best for them. But putting that aside, like it was not until my junior year is when I started getting involved in my first like queer student group. And part of that is because of like a little bit of drama. I mean, like I like dated this guy and then he was involved in this group and then we broke, like we broke up and then he ran for office and then he lost and then he stopped being involved in the group. So that was the year I started getting involved because he wasn't, he wasn't in there anymore. So um, my junior year is when I, I started to get involved in our, my our LGBT student group, and like that was when I first started my at least my queer student network, um, right? And so like, but I I say that because um, at the time like our LGBT group was very very white, um, and so on our campus, um, yes, like I mean out of thirty some thousand undergraduates, like I think the the the, the black community specifically, I think occupied maybe like eight percent so which is still sizable when you put it in, in size of scale but um heavily greek influenced um right we got all like the black greeks definitely own the campus and there was a there was a little bit of a there wasn't a lot of intersectional like there was there's was almost like no intersectionality between like the black community and the queer community right like my friends who are black and queer were like a lot of them were all the way dl like that's just like real talk right so like when i as a black gay man sort of like Balancing both like being black but also being gay at a very large university, imagining like my sort of socialization of like my inclination at the time and my calculation was to actually like be affirmed in the queer space first, right? And so you can imagine like the schism that is created by like 
you're trying to navigate these very complex identities and then like right like you're I mean at this time like 19 20 years old like in this like yeah. very interesting development part of your life and like you but you were in a space of like mostly like gay white folks right and so like and that was its own that has its own sets of issues right which I think then spill into the professional <laughs> career that I have now working in a predominantly white queer space but like it when I actually if I'm being completely honest like I think I feel like my network of color came much later in life, right? Like, I mean, like, I'm in my, I'm a 30-something, right, officially. And, like, I can honestly say my, like, strong, like, network of color did not come until later. And not this is not to say, like, obviously, I like black and brown friends. But in terms of, like, a network, right, particularly of, like, black and queer people, like, I didn't find that until I moved to New York, honestly. So I didn't have that experience in college. And, like, it actually, I have a lot of mixed feelings about, like, my time there, I mean, obviously, I don't I don't ever like to live in hindsight. It, the experience was what it was. I'm very proud of the time that I spent there. Um, but like it it did it did sort of delay some things for me that I feel like had a little bit of emotional um and development impact when like the first person who hired me for my first job in New York happened to be a gay black man. But that that took so it took so long for me to find this person to for him to be in my life and he's still in my life now. But like I, I feel like, yeah, it was not until I moved to New York and I was twenty four I was twenty four years old when I moved to New York City that I actually started to feel like, oh shit, like there's someone else who like looks like me and has some real passions to me and is like older than me and is like willing to take me under their wing. Um and like so I feel like I'm still still building that even now. Um mm-hmm. but I did not have that experience in college and I sort of like try to figure out like what if and if I did this differently what if I had gone Greek and like da 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 you know so that's just that was my college experience hmm. I would say like I I definitely had a bit of an opposite experience because um, for my undergraduate it was very it was like like I think 5,000 people but a lot of them were white and um, there was some even though it was well a lot of well-meaning white folk um, there mm-hmm. was a very big racial divide on campus so all the people of color kind of felt like we couldn't be as comfortable in many different spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we were, we did venture out. I do have a ton of white friends mm-hmm. from college I still stay in touch with, and they're amazing. But I think um, the climate of the campus was very tough on folks of color. Right. So we all kind of, and it wasn't a lot of us, so we all clung right. together. It wasn't just like all the black people together, all the brown people. It was, you know, it was like all the brown people, all the Latin people, all the black people. We all knew each other. We were all like a giant family. Right. And um, a ton of us also came through um, different, some of us came through different programs um, that the university had to diversify campus. But we were a giant family and we kind of banded together. And that's kind of how I built a lot of my network Mm -hmm. um, and staying in touch with those alumni. It felt like a family. Like if you are, if you are a brown or black person on that campus and it didn't matter what year, like I just knew alumni just because we, it, our experience was just, it was literally like, um, the Hunger Games for us, and we've you know we went through a lot of different things that we shouldn't have went through, but because of that, our bond was so strong. So I left university with a strong network, and even um the art for this podcast is someone from that network. Mm-hmm. So that's um kind of helped that. But then it became a little more you know difficult, and I graduated because it's. There's no, there are no clubs to meet people, and um, you don't want to meet all your friends at the club, like or in the night scene. So, I I think I built my network of color from 
um, other folks of color in the workspace or in the workplace that really paid it forward, like you were saying to you, and they became my mentors. Mm-hmm. And I met folks even I'm on a um, dodgeball league and I, I meet a ton of folks of color that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just different, you know, becoming friends with people at work and then they have other friends and then meeting you guys at work, you know, right, and, right. you know, you just meet people through other people, people know people. So that's kind of how that worked for me. But, you know, I think a ton of times, you know, even though um, having folks of color in the workspace does help and we look out for each other, I think there are instances in which we don't necessarily look out for each other. Right. And we do mess ourselves up. Um, Yeah, like, have you had a moment with, like, or a situation with someone, a colleague or someone at work that is a similar background than you and, like, Mm -hmm kind of contextualize how that felt or like how you navigated that because i think sometimes we we also our own people we we don't agree on everything right. it's not always um white versus poc sometimes it's poc versus poc right <laughs> at work real talk <laughs> so, hashtag like, real talk <laughs> 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 so how how has that been for you guys <laughs> um well you know it's actually really interesting for me when when i look back um i think there have been plenty of opportunities that I could have um, connected with colleagues a bit of color more. Um, but in the stress of like trying to get everything that you need to get done and like like just trying to figure out time, right, to actually put towards doing that, um, I don't think I did. I think there were opportunities sometimes that um, – that I could have like reached out a bit more and said, you know, you know, what are your what are your aspirations? How do you feel at this organization, et cetera? But just like in my being like in my own head about like everything that I need to get done. Mm-hmm. And again, just going back to like how you're like so overstretched in the nonprofit uh, sector sometimes. Um, maybe I didn't. And you know, now in retrospect, I can be really conscious of that in how I move forward and now particularly in kind of like a leadership uh, position. Um, but I think, right, initially at that like entry level, you're also like everyone is just like so stressed about getting their own stuff done. <laughs> like sometimes you don't. Right. And I, I think about it now and now, you know, like how, how I could have maybe connected with some colleagues at like an earlier stage. I mean, we're friends now and we stay connected and we support each other. We give each other advice professionally, but like how great would it have been to like connected earlier on? But sometimes, you know, you're just so, um, so in your head about everything that you have to get done and all whatever obstacles and day-to-day things that you might be facing Mm -hmm. that you don't make time for those connections. And so, um, Certainly, that's something I think about going forward. And and did it ever, and did any of those relationships, even though some of them you felt like weren't as fruitful as you wanted them to be in retrospect, did any of them like take a turn in which like you were like, okay, now we can't, we're not friends, and why? And like, and I think it's like a different situation when you're like the same culture Mm. and you're at work and you're like, we got be enemies like what is going on mm-hmm. <laughs> like how has that happened for you in any way or like or um anything yeah um not necessarily i think it, it's happened to me um with, with 
in relation to other factors. Like I think ageism has been mm, a huge thing yeah. in my yeah. career, particularly in fundraising, mm-hmm. particularly being a fundraiser of color right. who, you know, people look at you like you're my son. Like why are you, <laughs> why are you having right. a professional dialogue with me, right? Or sometimes they will engage in dialogue with you and then you know, off of email, they get to see you and they're like, oh, you're not, you know, the maybe older, more, you know, experienced person I thought I was talking to. Mm-hmm. And so um, there are other factors that come into play. So I don't totally want to, like, set it on, like, you know, um, like we sh- we're of the same culture and we should support each other. Um, but, um, you know, I do think that sometimes people you know, lose sight of that because they're so focused on other prejudices they might have. And some of those prejudices are culturally ingrained as right. well, right? So right. we have to be conscious of that. As like people of color, we carry a lot of package that day in and day out I like grapple with and come to terms with on my, you know, on my own. Um, but mm, That's important, I think. Uh, th- so sometimes, like, I do... I do want to say, like, man, like that, <laughs> that boss I had, and we, you know, that person was Latino too. They should have, like, maybe not been so harsh with me or, like, looked past, like, right. age and other differences. But, you know, I also understand that, like, I'm really privileged in being, like, a, a young person that can just, like, easily break free of that um, baggage and, and, in a way, um, but when you know, when if if you're if you that's been your life always of just like holding on to these prejudices and you know prejudice also like affecting your your life in like classism and ageism and all these things that exist in uh, spaces of color in a really um, kind of uh, structural way, um, then it's really hard for you to also break out of that, right? So I just want to like to that you laying the jewels in here <laughs> the intersectionality that's good because we're, we're a very diverse group of people i think like yeah. that's true um yeah. <laughs> has anything ever gotten um what would i say <laughs> cat fight with you has have you had to have a cat fight with any plc people at work or um how was that for you to navigate that no let me tell you honey um so <laughs> let me just say i was very very I, I was lucky and super grateful that in the most of my early part of my career um I, you know, for the organizations that work worked with and for, um, you know, it was a small group of us, and we definitely stayed close and connected. And I definitely have a very fond memories of the experiences for, especially for like older um, Black folks um, at organizations I would work for that like kept me under their wing and protected me. And I'm, I distinctly remember my first job in New York City. Um, uh, and you know, even like, I remember this relationship that I had with like our housekeeping staff, like our maintenance and building operations staff. And they're the ones who were like some of like biggest protectors, um, because they knew like, I mean, we were under-resourced and like they helped me out for my job and I was super young. And, um, and I definitely treasure that, including my bosses at the time who were incredible, both, uh, Afro-Latina woman and a, a black gay man. Um, I will say, you know, it's so interesting you bring up this topic around POC on POC and it's something that like I think ties into the fact that like being has a little bit to do with like 
me sort of like thinking about my West Indian heritage and culture and like black American culture and like because I was the only person in my my West Indian family to be born here. Almost every single person, um, particularly my mom's side, um, was born um, in Jamaica. So and that gives me a certain level of privilege and set different set of experiences. But one of the things I remember my my parents and particularly my mom talking about as I you know as I got older and, and had more professional experiences like. Sort of like the it's sort of around the the line of like not all skin skin folk are your kin folk, right? Like I think mm-hmm. folks are like familiar with that quote, and like I didn't know what that really meant until most salient, most saliently and and more precisely until probably starting about a year and a half ago in my professional career, and like so I at my particular job had gotten. I, I mean, I'll just like be a hundred. Like, I got a, a fairly significant promotion at my job, and because you're the ish, <laughs> <laughs> um, and like you know, uh, I that was such an interesting. Let me just say, like that's that when that happened, um, it like splintered into so many different like things that happened around the office. Um, and the biggest surprise and the thing that cut the most deeply was the reaction that I got from some people of color in my organization um, after I got my promotion. And, like, in that moment where, like, people that I've been really close to, like, had been, like, me- like sort of, like, not mentors, but, like, they were older, more experienced, and so you sort of looked to them as, like, sort of mentors in the job. Um, you didn't work together, but they were always supporter. Like, some of those folks had, like... I don't want to say turned on me. I mean, but, like, there's no other way to say it. Like, they kind of, like, some of them turned on me. And, like, it was one of the most, like, personally, professionally, spiritually, emotionally most, like, shocking thing I ever sort of see. Because it was one of those things that, like, of course I knew, like, the mediocre white folks would, like, feel some kind of way, like, and feel threatened and feel bothered, right? Because, like, I, I, I've i always been a very ambitious, like, black gay man who's, like, I'm doing the shit. I know what I'm talking about. Like, like I, I know my worth, right? But the thing that sort of really sidelined me was reactions I got from some people in my own organization. And I struggled with it for so long. And I, when I tell you how painful it was, it was one of those, like, oh, my God, I have no idea where to turn. Like, because, like, the people who are, like, my rocks are no longer my rocks mm-hmm. um, in the same way. And, like, I remember my parents, of course, never, like, I told you so, but, like, we're just like, wow, you're, you're, you're having that moment that, like, they've experienced when they immigrated here to this country, right? But I think they were waiting for me to like have that experience. Um, and that was very shocking. Um, and it still persists to this day. But like it just sort of like – and when I mentioned the sort of West Indian black American thing, like it's it's something that my my mother used to talk to me about. Or, or like there are some nuances to like how like how we see each other and like how we celebrate one another and like – right? Like – and it's funny because my West Indian colleagues at my job without a doubt, like, came to me and were just, like, congratulating me. They're like, oh, my goodness, this is so – there was a some certain sort of solidarity. Like, um, we have one other um, incredible Jamaican um, uh, attorney in our office, and, like, she was just like, oh, my God, you – there's no other person I know who – you deserve this. Like, this is incredible. Um, but, like, it was such a splinter um, of so many things and something I'm, I'm really still – Still, still, sort of like figuring this out. Um, I mean, some of the the conflict and tension has subsided, and there's other dynamics I think that were play around it. It, it wasn't just this thing, but like our organization's changing. But um, it was um, a moment in time that had a, a big impact on me. Mm. Yeah, I definitely resonate with the disappointment you receive when you're like 
when your rock is no longer your rock and they become like a knife in your back or a thorn on your side. Right. <laughs> right. I, I definitely in my first job out of college, I had a um someone that was well, they became my boss, but they were a mentor to me initially and then they became my boss and um she was a black woman and and I, I think I have no I have no bad I have no bad things to say about her. I think I hope the best for her. Um, we're not close anymore. We don't, we're not talking terms, you know, but you know, I hope all is well for her, but she was someone I like looked up to. Um, she was one of my first, like I saw her in the position she was in and I was like, wow, like that could be me. Mm -hmm. And I really tried to, you know, be, I was like, I want you to be my mentor. Like I really flung under her like a, like a little brother and I was really green. I'm still green ish, but I was very green then. And um, she, I mean, she taught me a lot of things. I'm, I'm gonna say she taught me so much that I, I've been able to reach where I've reached in my career based on the things she's taught me and in our experiences. So I thank her for that. Um, but um, there were some other out, other issues going on, and um, there's definitely like a, I think there's a mentality some for some people of color that we have a crab, crab in the barrel situation mm, where other crabs yeah. pull other crabs down. Um, I'm not going to go super in detail what the situation was, but basically um, she's willing to let me take the fall for something I did not do that had nothing to do with me. Um, and I was kind of like, wow, it burned. It burned. Or like publicly disparaging me in front of other people because um, and I just feel like there's certain things like you. It's like it's like your grandma might whoop you in the house, but she's not going to whoop you in front of other other people right like there's a right. certain respect level and i think also like your grandma's also not gonna sell you out right so like and, and, and if there's you gotta have you gotta find a new grandma right. but like my thing is like <laughs> that's blood that it hurt it stung it stung real bad because you know this is someone i really you know i cared about deeply i really right. looked up to her i used to stay at her house like we, we were tight you know, now I don't go to, uh, there's a certain bar in Brooklyn I just don't go to because I'm just like, I don't want to run into you. Like, you know, I don't right. want to deal with you um, in that way. Like, there's a lot of rec reconciliation that would need to occur. Right. But I'm okay with her living her life and I want to live mine. But yeah, I was betrayed bad. But I also made friendships in that experience with other people in my workspace who were people of color and who are white because of that. Right. And, um, and I learned my lesson. I learned, yeah, not every person of color is out to help you or right. out to save or be there for you and everyone who says that they're going to help you is not so um you know i i learned that lesson and navigating that i think i i really stuck to what my priorities were and i really um asked advice from those outside of my job who i you know who my family and friends and yeah, you know, I'm about my money. I'm about my bread. So, like, mm -hmm. the minute you come from my money in any way, like, I will, um, I'll do what I got to do. Right. But I'm not going to, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not someone who believes in, like, that crab in a barrel um, metaphor where, you know, pulling each other down. I'm kind of like, no, I don't believe in that. Right. So, yeah, that's, um, I would say, yeah, that's how I navigated. I had to be very conscious of, like, understanding what her ethos was and where she was coming from. And why she would have that mentality. And I was like, okay, cool. I know now. Right. I know now. <laughs> but yeah, definitely, um, definitely how I mentioned before when meeting, so we, we try to make um, our connections like we do amongst, like I have connections with you both and to avoid instances like that. Um, but I also have, you know, like I said, I was in dodgeball. Um, I'm in dodgeball. So that helps me meet other um people of color right. um what ways 
outside of work, do you like meet other POC professionals, like people of color professionals? Like how how do you how does it happen? It's harder out here right. <laughs> when you're not in college. So any it's okay if you don't have a way. I don't really have a perfect way either. <laughs> um Yeah, that that's a tough one. I guess I'm I'm you know I think I'm I'm lucky that the field I'm in is also like a very social one. Um it involves, you know, a lot of social gatherings, a lot, a lot of what I do is like put together special events for people to get together and network what have you. Um so I think I'm lucky that like through work I am able um to make a lot of connections with people of color and, you know, now even more so queer people of mm-hmm. color. Um, but there's a lot that could be done. There's a, you know, there's a, um, in terms of your day-to-day, like, yeah, I could probably um, make, easily make connections with people of color, but I think making connections with queer people of color outside of work on my day-to-day is probably not that easy to come by, right? And again, to your point, like, you might have, um, you know, common denominators in terms of culture, but in terms of, like, what your day-to-day philosophy is as a queer person Mm -hmm. um, of color, like, you know, it might not be helpful to you to make connections with people that have a similar background than you, and so I think that... You know, if you're gonna clash, um, then that's not helpful. So right. I think, I think there's a there's a lot to be done in terms of creating spaces where queer people of color um, can come together. Um, so because I I don't I don't I don't see that as like a day to day like just out on the streets for you know um, kind of meeting others. It's it's complicated. I mean, we're all. First of all, it's New York too, mm-hmm. so it's like everyone's in their struggle and their hustle, and like, you know, are we really able to make time to make those connections? Probably not. And so I think that that, that, that there's there's a lot that could be done there, and certainly something I'm I am thinking about and striving for, and what I'm doing and how I think about fundraising and like engaging um, the community. In, in a space that's queer, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I will say, like, to what you sort of said, any about about people making the time, because I, I used to, like, I know that's part of, like, the, like, living in New York City, like, no one has the time, everyone's in the rush and the hustle, <laughs> but, like, I really, something that really resonates with me that is, you make time for the things that, like, are really important to you, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I, for a very long time, when I knew I wasn't getting... I knew I wasn't getting the level of like support and like nurturing from my own like queer people of color. And also I want to say, and I want to be specific also like queer black people. Like I, re- I really like just to, I mean, I know we're talking POC, but like there's a lot of anti-blackness in the, in the POC space. And so I just also yeah. want to name like, mm-hmm. yes, the like, POC part's important, but for me specifically, like, like I didn't really know many other just gay black men, like, right. Like, and that's like its own set of challenges and issues. But like, I had to make this decision at a certain point in my career where I spent majority of it like working like I mean, I just worked all the time. Like it was just an, it was an easy place to like spend most of my time and energy. Um and be also just being type A and whatever the case is. But like I made a very deliberate choice, maybe like a year and a half to two years ago, that like 
I just I needed to carve out more space and I needed to sort of go to my comfort zone, right? Like because New York City is rough and tumble and also because I'm a naturally more small orbit person, like those two things collide, right? Like it's already stressful, you're already working a ton, you're like you're a little bit more introverted, like you don't meet you don't like meet people necessarily easily. Like I just right. So it's like I realized I needed to like, all right, let me challenge myself a little differently. And one of the things I did was I spent a lot more time in Brooklyn. Like, and I'm not trying to like, I mean, I live in Brooklyn. (laughs) You know, I am trying to like wrap the borough a little bit because I feel like, you know, there's people like, you know, either trying to gentrify it or trying to like, oh, it wasn't hip. It wasn't hip then. Now it's, now it's hip now. I'm like, girl, it's, Brooklyn's always been hip. But like, anyway, like, I I started making more personal space because I realized like if I'm not going to get through work because I'm working with a bunch of like white queer folks, right? Like, which has been, like, my life and my career for so long, um, that, like, I needed to, like, go to spaces, social spaces, where I could meet people who, like, even if they didn't do the work that I do, which actually I find a lot of, I, I enter these spaces and a lot of them don't really do what I do, which is completely fine. But, like, I started going to certain, like, um, like parties. I remember uh, it's this party called Poppy Juice that happens oh. in Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, I remember, like, and it was so cute, and it was, like, one last shag many, many moons ago, which doesn't exist anymore, and, like, I remember that being my first, like, wow, like, here in Brooklyn, like, here are all these, like, queer people of color, and, like, it's a very deliberately an intentional affirmative space and I was like fuck like okay I can find the shit in Brooklyn like right and like <laughs> that's when I started to like there there are spaces for us and but like mind you like this was like one party right like I mean there's like no out of even all of the gay bars like say even in the purpose of like networking quote unquote like there are none that they're, they're all uh, white right, that's all why white. I don't I mean people be saying like come out to like you know Hell's Kitchen I'll go out for like you know right. casual people but I'll be at the event Bryce stuff I'll be at Langston's right. I'll go to Harlem in a minute right. I'll be at Solomon and Cuff like that's where you'll find me that's if I want because right. I want to be with my people I want to be with the Latino exactly. community because I don't want to be the only you know Exactly. Like, we're like relegated to like a, a the, night. Huh? We're like relegated to one, one night. Yeah, like those events night. are like, those happen right. like once, like whatever. Like I feel like there's such a hunger for that, for that space. But like there is no like gay black own like bars and clubs yeah. and like stuff anymore. Right. And the main issue is like that we have to be regulated to nightlife to meet other people. And it's like, this is not the safest and best space to meet like people who align with my values. Right. Like, I, I want to do book club maybe with same folk like me. And right. I want to. I want to do something safe. Yeah. Right. Like well, there is gay book club. Well, there's Cupac. Like, it, like it's right. just very white gay. Let's put some Lanston here. Right. Like, <laughs> well, there's an idea, right? I know. Yeah. Right? We can you start see, it. We, yeah, maybe we, we can maybe we can do something. Or maybe someone listening will start it. Or they already have one. Like, <laughs> but do you guys have any final? Um, Anything final that you want to let the um, audience know out here, listeners know? Um, I think the things I gauged was that you have to carve out time. Um, you have to make the time if this is important to you right. to, ha- to make totally. that network. And it's not going to be easy, but you'll meet other people who are making the time. And we've done that with each other. Right. So, you know, we're doing this at this moment. Right. So, yeah, um, I think that's what I gauged. About what Any last things you guys want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really about making the time, um, you know, being being patient with yourself. I think is something I try to be mindful of day to day. Just like there, <laughs> you might be feeling like you're in a frenzy, but you have to give yourself time, right? And in doing that, you'll open up more space and time um, to connect with people, and hopefully. Uh, Build, continue to build your network and 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 help others realize that there's a network out there for them and be you know kind of 
mentor through your own um, kind of experience. Um, What I'll say is, um, and especially considering the current political climate that we're in, I've been wrestling with like a lot of like, how do I, you know, when you think about like radical self-care, right? When I think about my professional life, my personal life, the things that nourish me and feed me and like allow me to feel like, like a hundred is like really thinking about like, and for folks who are like maybe in my category of like, right, like more innately cautious, right? Like we don't necessarily have people who put our put, put ourselves out there all the time, um, right? But like there's such a need and desire, particularly now, for folks to like speak with more voice and more agency and to take up more space. I've never been someone to take up a lot, like a lot of space. It's just not something, it's not how I'm taught. It's not how I was raised. It's not just who I am innately. But I feel like we're in an interesting time where like mm-hmm. in, ter- in terms of making change, like in our careers, in our lives, like you kind of have to take up a little more space. And so like... There's two things I think I will leave folks with that I've been really thinking about. One is sort of like whenever you have those moments in your life where there's experiences and it could happen at work, it could happen in the street where like there's a there's maybe an instinct to contract, like right because it's like it, I I it's vulnerable, it's sensitive, it's touching on something and my instinct is to pull back. Like it's to like really take that and figure out a way to how do I expand in that moment? Actually, how do I take up a little more space and take more and take a little more risk? Um, and the and the second is is a is a is a quote um, that like I like I don't know how it took me so long to come across this, but it's from Audre Lord and and she talks about um, it's a quote it's like I am I am deliberate and afraid of nothing. And when I tell you when I when I heard this said to me and I did my research, I was just like, oh my god, this is like this is like one of those quotes that like I needed this right now, right? And like I've. I've adapted it as and it's a bl- black feminist, um, you know, ideology and philosophy, and it it talks. It, it's exactly that. Like when there are moments where like you you feel like yeah you have to sort of close back in, but like this is an opportunity for you to actually like to expand and to take up more space and to take more power. Like you sing to yourself like I am delivered and unafraid of nothing, and that those words give me so much strength. Um, and I think it's really, it can be really, really helpful and really, really powerful in terms of making the decision sometimes that in your most vulnerable, making the powerful decision to really sort of step out. So that's what I'd say. I love that. We're definitely starting book club. We're going to make this, <laughs> make this I'm thing. ready. Yes. <laughs> but, um, Start with Audre Lorde first. <laughs> I love it. This is right. We're going to do book club. And we can do it in other languages too, but you know, I got you know I got to brush up on my Spanish <laughs> and my French. I've never. It, I don't even know. You got to teach me. Parle vous français. But I think it's a great time to um, time to end. But thank you both for um, being part of this journey with me, and I really appreciate it. And I hope you feel the same way I do. <laughs> no totally. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> All right. Peace out. Bye. <laughs>